I'm glad that I'm glad that there's some chatter. How is everyone doing this morning? Great. Great. All right. Uh, welcome back. Um, I'm Chris Holmes. The uh, this is my third week here with you all on Sunday morning teaching um, this Journeys classroom. I'm on staff here at first and am the Stemler Scholar in residence and am enjoying that. Um, I was telling Gavin before class that this is the first week that I'm like, I've, I've gotten out of my lane a little bit and now I'm starting to feel like this is a really big place and, and maybe I don't know which way is up and which way is down or right or left. So um, you all get to be the, the product of that experience right now. We'll see how that goes. Um, but I've been asked uh, by Lynn um, Weisard, who is the new admin assistant for Emerging Generations in Discipleship, uh, to uh, complete these um, sign-in sheets uh, throughout the day. So they'll start up front and work their way back. Um, apparently, this is a way that we can send you a bill or something for today's class. Um, so, I, so I've been told. I, I don't know the specifics. Uh, so... Uh, as we as we filter in, uh, as we have many of you have come from worship or prepare to go to worship, let me open us in a word of prayer, and we'll jump right in. Dear God, we we come here from a variety of places, a variety of physical places in and around the city of Atlanta, but also from a number of different spiritual, emotional, and relational places. Some of us come this morning refreshed and recharged from a weekend of rest or from recent conversations with good friends or connections with family. Others of us come to this space less oriented less sure of what we're doing here or what we're doing with life. And some of us come just hoping no one will ask how we're doing or that we won't have to give an honest answer. So God, wherever we have come from to this place and however we find ourselves in this place, may you meet us here a God who goes with us on the journey, who meets us in dark and bright places and always leads us to places we can't imagine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is, uh, as I said at the beginning, this is the third week. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Please come in. There's lots of seats in the front. I've never bit anyone in a class before. Um, but, but that could change. Yes? Nope. We're all good. Um, so this is the third week uh, in our class, and uh, we, are, we are going to be talking, this says week two, it should say week three, but you all will forgive me this one. This is my one error for this year. Um, week three, foreigners, again, Israel and the exile. So the topic is a very significant event in Israel's sacred memory, 
which is the event of exile, the event of being a displaced people, being a forced displaced people uh, into the land of foreigners again. And so um, by way of review, if this is your first week with me, or maybe you missed one week, I just always want to give you a sense of where we've been. The first week we opened with this idea of the people on the move. And how in the biblical tradition, it seems as though people of faith are always on the move. Whether it's Genesis, whether it's Revelation, whether it's the disciples, we haven't even gotten to the New Testament, but I promise we will eventually. People are moving in Scripture. And we talked about the various ways we might understand journeying, a physical journey from one place to another, a spiritual journey, a metaphorical journey, and we talked, I, I talked about the reality of this century being called the age of migration, the, of global migration. And how does that inform, how does that shape, how does that challenge maybe our understanding of journeying? And so then we looked in a, in a sort of 30,000 foot view of journeying in the Bible, and the subsequent weeks were sort of zooming in for different areas. And last week, we talked about the Exodus, another important event in Israel's memory. And uh, we did so under the question of, are we there yet? Uh, you'll remember the Simpsons were our, our text of choice uh, opening us. And I made this observation at the end of class last week, that for the wilderness wandering, for the, that time of coming out of Egypt and preparing to enter Cana, which was about 40 years, that journeying was not so awesome. <laughs> that it was a matter of life and death, that for the people of Israel, survival was something they were struggling with as they moved from point A to point B. That it was a time of dissolving trust. Uh, the Israelites' trust in God. Could, could God provide for them in the wilderness? And there was a refrain often in the literature of, man, I wish we could just go back. Our life as slaves in Egypt was so much better than this journey. At least we had a diverse menu option. And so there's this dissolving trust also in the leaders that God had appointed in Moses and in Aaron and ultimately a dissolving trust in one another. And so in, in this moment of wandering, in this example of journeying, there was this resistance, a pronounced resistance, in fact, to this unknown future. And I asked the question, when and where have we been where we would rather go back to something that was not ultimately life-giving, but it was easier than a journey that we might be facing? What does that look like for us? So for today, we're going to talk about the exile. And in order to do that, the first thing I have to do is we have to fast forward, like a lot and really fast. So we are going to cover a lot of the biblical history in a very short amount of time in order to get to a discussion of exile. I then want to talk about what I'm calling the Age of Empires, because if we're going to understand the exile, we have to understand a little bit about the geopolitical realities of the ancient Near Eastern world at the time. Then we're going to play a good game of three truths and a lie about the exile. We'll see who's on, who's, who can identify the lie. 
And I will say a few words at the end about exile then and now. Just a few thoughts about how the exile and the theme of exile continues in our tradition and in other ways. So, as I try to do at least once each Sunday, I want you to talk to each other and then talk to me. And this, this is a, I hope, easy, you know, low stakes question. Share a time when you lived or visited a foreign country. For some of you, that happens every summer or every year. For some of you, maybe it's once or twice. And then, what did it feel like to be a foreigner? So where did you go? Think about a time. It doesn't have to be every visit you've ever made. Um, but think of one visit. And what did it feel like to be a foreigner? All right? So take maybe three minutes to turn to a partner or two if you need to be in a group of three. That's fine. Um, and share that experience. And we're going to talk back to me. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, will I embarrass you too much if I introduce you just briefly so people know who you are? Yes, you will. But okay. You're going to do it anyways. Well, no, yet. no, no. So I won't. I won't. I won't bring you up. I'll just say. Okay. I'll just say that Lynn is Lynn, Lynn is here in the back yes. for those of you because I want to make sure they know who you are because I evoked your name earlier. I said you were going to be sending them a bill for today's class. Yes.
Okay. So I'm going to I'm going to draw you back to me now. Good. All right, all right, all right. See, I need a sounding bell. I never I never learned how to do one of those big whistles, so I'm unfortunate in that, but maybe I'll get a bullhorn for next week. Can always just have that in my back pocket. I think every, every person who works at a church needs a bullhorn. That's my thought for today. So what was it like to be a foreigner? What does it feel like to be a foreigner? What were some of the things that you said or that your brilliant partner said? Don't drink the water. <laughs> Don't drink the water. So depending on, depending on where you travel you may need to be aware of what you eat and, how, and what you drink. Correct. What else? You can't read the road signs. Yes. So there, whether, because of language, I'm assuming, um, but so there's a, perhaps a language gap uh, between you and the host country. Be yeah. Right. So different customs, like driving. Uh, you might drive on the wrong side of the road if you're not careful. I'm sorry, a, a political coup all in one trip. You had to pay extra for that trip. I came from Oslo, Norway in 1959 to go to Yes. That's a bit different. Yeah. I love that. What a <laughs> big adjustment. That's, that's awesome. What a, what a great, you know. Uh, exp you know, experience to say from coming from Oslo to here. Uh, we, moved, we moved to Atlanta from New Jersey, but before that we were in Colorado or Washington, and it, was, it wasn't as drastic probably as it was for you, but it was also new. We felt like foreigners in a way. We had to learn what the real meaning of bless your heart is. Um, it took us a hot second, but um, what else? What else is it like to be a foreigner? Yes. 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 Yeah, the tourist effect, right? That you, that, yeah. Oh, I gotcha. Oh, gotcha. So even physically. Yeah. So the idea that when you're in a foreign country, you may, you may, as much as you try, you may look different, um, whether because of your racial or, or ethnic makeup or even how you dress, um, uh, the sorts of clothes you wear. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So de depending on what part of the world you're visiting or what part of the city even, depending on what, you know, uh, you might be told, this is a very safe place. Just don't be out after dark. You might, you might hear that. So there might be some precautionary tales that you learn. Yeah, maybe one or two more. Yeah. Yeah. And the beauty of the architecture. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So uh, for, for some, the be experience can be a very exciting one, uh, curious and wanting to learn about the, the culture and visit the culture, for sure. Good. So 
I, I want us to sit with these memories or these thoughts about being foreigners in a foreign country because in, in many ways the exile is that experience over 40 years for the people of Israel. Um, they experience living in various parts of the ancient Near Eastern world uh, for a number of years. Uh, I want to pause real quick and just say that Lynn, who I mentioned earlier, is standing back by the piano. So if you've never seen her, maybe after class or, or drop by, make sure that you say hi to her. Um, so I want to share a personal story about living in a foreign country. I, don't, I haven't traveled a lot. I'm hoping to change that eventually. My wife and I had kids a bit earlier than we were planning. Um, there's a story there we can talk later. Um, <laughs> But when I was in college, I studied Spanish in Nicaragua for four weeks as a part of a study tour. And one of the things that happened there that was really interesting uh, was we encountered some Germans who were also there. And they were not on a study tour, they were just sort of traveling. And I experienced, for the first time, being targeted as an American. You're an American. We know you loud Americans. And I remember distinctly this coffee shop, this experience with a, a German, a young German woman um, who was, who was very, she did not, she was not very happy with the American tourists that she had met along the way. And I thought, isn't it interesting that uh, even in a foreign country, we're all foreigners, we're all maybe a bit uneasy, and, and she was saying, well, we're better at traveling than you are, or you're, it was just interesting. So uh, in addition to being all disconcerted uh, and in a new country and experiencing Spanish class and swimming in cool places and, and doing all these other things, I thought, what happens when multiple people are displaced in one place at a time? Uh, whether temporarily, temporarily or long-term. And that, that is another detail that I'll keep in the mix for our class today because although our literature, the Bible, focuses on the experience of Israel and the Israelites, the reality of the geopolitical events were that there were many displaced people. Um, it wasn't just Israel who was displaced. It was other conquered people who were displaced. And so you can imagine uh, what it would be like to live in a country that is not your own, with another group or groups of people who are not from that country either. What would that look like? And for me, my mind goes immediately to Clarkston, Georgia, if you've ever, if, how many of you know about Clarkston? Okay, everybody's like, come on, Chris, this is old. <laughs> old news. Um, but the, the idea that Clarkston has uh, the most diverse population for, for the, the country, as far as I'm uh, aware, at least that used to be a number, um, and that uh, we have displaced people who are all living in a very tight space, and it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful image of maybe what it might have been like for the people of Israel to, to live and experience exile. I'm sort of getting ahead of myself. So um, let me fast forward, uh, fast, fast forward, as I said, to get us to this exile event. Um, I am uh, not spatially adept, uh, so this is my attempt at a timeline. You'll notice that the gaps are not e evenly spread. This is the best that I could do. But so we left off last week with the exodus and just on the verge of the conquest. So that's where we were. We were right around uh, the 13th century BCE. And between that, between that event, the exodus, and the conquest, we have this whole range till we get to the fall of the south. That's where we're going to get uh, for the topic today. And so 
just by way of summary, you'll remember that Joshua in the conquest is uh, commissioned by, the people of, by, by Moses to lead the people of Israel into this promised land. Finally, 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 they get it. Um, and then there's this transition after the settling into the promised land where we have this period of the judges. So instead of having a king, the, the Israelites have a number of judges. And so it's sort of like a tribal confederacy going on in the promised land. They're, they're figuring it out. They're growing into their identity as the people of Israel. And then uh, in around 1025, this is the period known as the United Kingdom. This is when the Israelites say, hey, it's been cool having all of these judges, but really we want to be just like everyone else, so give us a king. Please, please, please give us a king. Of course, part of the, the, the resistance there is that, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was understood to be the king. And uh, so there was some resistance, and there, we, we read about this in the books of Samuel and 1 Kings. And so, yes, eventually the, the people of Israel get that king they want, and it's Saul, right? And Saul has this, he's got a, a mixed reputation uh, in biblical tradition. Um, uh, Saul is uh, uh, replaced by David, uh, you know, the, 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 the very famous king of Israel, uh, then Solomon. And so we trace this story in the books of Kings and Chronicles, it doesn't last long that the Israelites are all one nation. And so in uh, around 928 is when there are two kingdoms. And it's important for us to remember that for, for a number you know, of centuries, the, the kingdoms are divided. So there's a king in the north, which is called Israel. This is where things get really confusing, right? Because we can say Israel, like this whole area of Palestine, um, or we can say Israel, like just the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And in our biblical witness, generally speaking, Judah is the better place, right? Israel is more prone to bad kings, uh, and Judah is, at least has a few good kings. But generally speaking, the narrative is that kings are not a great decision for the people of Israel. Um, they, uh, they tend to do things that the later historians or the later writers say were not great. So um, the last king in Israel is Hosea, um, who uh, is in power right before the kingdom of the north, Israel, falls in 722. So it, it ceases to exist. Um, it falls to Assyria, which we'll learn more about in just a few seconds. And then the last king of Judah before the fall of the south is Zedekiah, um, and he is in power when the south falls in, in and around 598, and I'll explain why I have two dates there in just a second. And another way for us to fast forward would be to just think about how much of the Bible we've journeyed over to get to the exile, how much we've skipped over uh, in the fast forward button. So if Joshua, Judges, and Ruth are basically concerned with the conquest, we could, we've skipped those entirely. We've also skipped all of these books or part, portions of the, the, the Hebrew Bible that, that relate to the united or the divided kingdom. We have passed over a lot of stuff. And then... If we wanted to talk about exile, we could talk about all or part of this third column of books. 
And so I present it not to give you a summary of each of these books, although I'm sure you would all listen very astutely. But just for us to pause real quick and say, well, that's a journey. That's a, that, that's a lot of learning. That's a lot of reflecting that we have skipped over, unfortunately. And in what I will talk about with exile, I just want to say that I'm just barely scratching the surface of, of the ways in which our Bible responds to or anticipates or comes out of exile. So that's, where we're, that's what we've skipped. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to dig in to some other things. So I want to, uh, as I said at the beginning, I want to give us a sense of, of how we've progressed at a sort, of a, a sort of a geopolitical level to get to the exile. So the, the, the place to begin is with what it, the scholars would call the Neo-Assyrian Empire which existed, uh, came into existence around uh, the 10th century BCE and was really in power, more or less, until 612 BCE. So that's, that's an extensive amount of time for an ancient empire. That's a good amount of time. And they are the ones who are responsible for capturing the northern kingdom. And the exile that the northern kingdom experiences... So when we talk about exile, we typically are talking just about the southern kingdom because what happens to the north is almost entirely forcibly displaced. The northerners are almost entirely kicked down, and what the Assyrians do is they rehabit that land with other foreigners. So it's no longer Israel, the northern kingdom. It becomes this sort of mishmash of different nations and different peoples so that so that Effectively, the northern kingdom loses all of their national and ethnic identity. Incidentally, what we know from biblical history is that this northern kingdom, also known as Samaria, within three or four generations, these foreigners become Yahweh worshipers. Even though, in theory, all of those Yahweh worshipers had been pushed down and they had been rehabilitated with other folks, the Samaritans, who we know from Scripture, from the, Old, from the New Testament in particular, become Yahweh worshipers. The people in the South don't think that they're orthodox enough, uh, and so there's all sorts of infighting about that. But within three or four generations, the people come back. And so not only does Assyria capture the northern kingdom, but Assyria also begins to cause some problems for the southern kingdom. Other, under King Hezekiah. So if you've ever read the beginning of Isaiah, uh, this is, Hezekiah is in charge there. And Isaiah is giving some advice to Hezekiah about how to respond to the Assyrians who are causing some trouble, who are knocking at the front door. And so initially, Hezekiah resists. He joins with Egypt and forms an alliance and resists Assyria. But eventually, he has to surrender. And this is how some Assyrian uh, propaganda or recording, depending on how you, dis, uh, how you would judge it, this is what uh, the, the scribes of King, uh, the, the Assyrian king Sennacherib say about this event. As for Hezekiah the Judean, who had not submitted to my yoke, 
I besieged 46 of his fortified walled cities and surrounding smaller towns, which were without number. Using packed down ramps and by applying battering rams, infantry attacks by mines, breaches and siege machines, I conquered them. I took out 200,000 people, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, cattle, and sheep without number, and counted them as spoil. As for Hezekiah the Judean, I locked him up within Jerusalem, his royal city, like a bird in a cage. I surrounded him with earthworks and made it unthinkable for him to exit by the city of the gate. So some interesting historical uh, records about what happened to King Hezekiah because he resisted initially. Um, he's imprisoned uh, much of the city um, uh, and cities around uh, in the southern kingdom are taken away. Uh, and what happens as a result of this is that uh, Zedekiah gives up the kingdom, at least in, in an independent way. He becomes what is known as a vassal king, sort of a puppet king. Uh, so Assyria has ultimate control but allows for a local ruler to sort of continue to rule without full authority, without full power. So a king may be a name alone, uh, Hezekiah becomes. But biblical literature looks back on this and actually wonders if this is not a miracle, that Jerusalem was not utterly destroyed at this point, like what had happened with the northern kingdom. So despite his resistance, uh, there, is this, there is this confidence, um, or at least one interpretation, that God was on the side of the southern kingdom in not allowing Jerusalem to be utterly annihilated, like the northern kingdom. So Assyria, then just to track a little bit of what happens with Assyria, uh, they are, like many ancient uh, empires, are not happy with what they've garnered. They want more, so they invade Egypt. Uh, they uh, in, in, encounter and engage in various wars. And is, as I think is custom, although I'm not a scholar of ancient empires, but as I, you know, sort of anecdotally, as you try to expand and expand, eventually you implode. It seems to be a, you get too big for your britches, they might say. And so um, in 627, one of the kings dies, and there is some infighting and chaos. Who's going to be king after him? And so we begin to see the demise of the Assyrian Empire. And in 612, the capital of, of Assyria falls. Uh, which effectively puts an end to the Assyrian Empire. So again, just to sort of give you the two bullet points that matter about Assyria, they capture the northern kingdom, it entirely displace that people, and they set up a vassal king in the south. Um, so Jerusalem remains standing, but there's a significant shift in the political world. Then, uh, following Assyria, this is when we get Babylon. And Babylon, although there are other kings from, for our literature, the two kings that are probably most significant and at least most famous are Nebuchadnezzar and his son Nabonidus, uh, who collectively rule from 604 down through 539. And it is in Babylonia, in the period of Babylon, that Jerusalem is ultimately defeated. 
This is the time when Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed, and a number of Israel's, uh, or Judah's, ruling people, their, their scribes, their artisans, their, their powerful people, are forcibly left, are displaced, either to Babylonia or to Egypt, uh, primarily. And uh, they are, they're forced uh, into exile. Again, uh, we'll, we'll dig in more to what was life like in Babylon, but this is uh, what the Babylonian Chronicle says. Again, another, another non-biblical text uh, that has royal propaganda, so we, we always read it with a critical eye. Um, but this is what it says. Year 7 of Nebuchadnezzar in the month of Kislev, December 598, the king of Babylonia mobilized his troops and marched to the west. He encamped against the city of Judah, other, or, or Jerusalem, and on the 2nd of Adar, the 16th of March, 597, he captured the city and seized its king. A king of his choice he appointed there. He took its heavy tribute and carried it off to Babylon. So this is uh, when uh, we realize, uh, this happens in 598, um, and then uh, there's, there's some continued struggle um, and another forced deportation uh, about a decade later. Um, but for uh, all intents and purposes, Jerusalem is laid waste. Um, and the people who are left there are, are not the most, they experience some significant poverty um, uh, and lack of resources. So uh, we, we see the, the setup, the continuing practice of setting up these vassal kings, mass deportation. Jerusalem, as I said, in 586 is defeated again. Uh, and then uh, we reach uh, uh, the period uh, some 40 years after the destruction of Jerusalem where we have a new empire on the scene. Um, and this is the Persian Empire. Um, uh, you may know of Cyrus the Great, uh, who, is, uh, who is the one who captures Babylon. And in biblical tradition, Cyrus is considered a great hero in some of the biblical tradition. Isaiah even refers to him, believe it or not, as the Messiah. Cyrus is the people of Israel's Messiah. Why would, why would the view of that be? Well, because when Cyrus came to power, he said, why don't you all go back to Judah and rebuild your temple? And I'm going to help you. Why don't you, I'm going to give you state authorization to be a semi-autonomous nation again or at least a religious nation again. And so um, Cyrus the Great is, is viewed with great um, uh, praise in some of our, our literature. He appoints the first governor of Judah. So again, not necessarily a nation, but at least a governorship. Um, the, the, then we, we, we hear about Ezra and Nehemiah in this period, if you remember those books of the Bible. And Nehemiah is said to serve as the governor of Judah uh, from 445 until 430. And I just put at the bottom here, uh, lest you think that anything lasts forever, uh, that the Persians are defeated by the Greeks uh, in uh, 336, or by Alexander the Great, who was a Macedonian, um, and then we start the great period of the Hellenistic, or the Hellenistic period, the time of Greek rule. That's replaced by the Romans, right? You can see how there's, we just, just keep going. We just keep going. So, I just covered a lot. 
And I'm sure there are some questions, um, even points of clarification or correction. I'm, I'm totally open to points of correction. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the question was about what is meant by the lost tribes of Israel, and I'm not sure I know uh, if, if if what I'm going to say is exactly the answer. But but effectively, um, when the divided kingdom was there, there were two tribes in Judah and ten tribes in the northern kingdom, and because of what happened with the the Assyrian annihilation of the north, effectively. The, the ten tribes are lost, some scholars would say. That, that, um, that, uh, that, that's one of the products. When the, you lose that sense of nationality and ethnicity, you've lost those tribes. Um, uh, and so uh, I'm not sure if that is the only way that we could think about the lost tribes of Israel, but that would be uh, one of the ways that, that I've been thought, taught to think about it. Yeah. Well, aren't you just stealing my thunder? <laughs> so, so, uh, so the question was, um, this all sounds very human. This history sounds all very human. What evidence is there that God had made a covenant with Israel? Is that that's adequate? So this is um, this question, this prompting question. Um, is uh, one way for us to think about this is under the classical idea of theodicy, right? At its most basic level, why do good things happen to bad people, right? That's theodicy. We, we have questions about theodicy um, at Super Bowls and at hospital bedsides, right? What have we done wrong to deserve this? Oh, did I say why do bad things, good things? No, well, okay, I, so maybe I misspoke, maybe I didn't. So maybe I did, maybe I didn't, I don't know. So the idea is um, that we get from some wisdom literature in other places is that God blesses those who are obedient. And what a lot of the biblical literature does is says, well, I was a good person. Why did this happen? Or the converse, those are some real nasty people over there, and they seem to have everything I want. And so it is. Why do, you know, a question of theodicy can be both, why do bad things happen to good people, but also why do good things happen to bad people? And so one of the fundamental questions that, that comes out of the exile, and we're going we're gonna to see some examples of this in, in just a few minutes, is if God's covenant with Israel was meant to be shown in them having an independent kingdom with an independent king and their own land and their own temple and their own religious practices, what does it mean that their kings have been replaced and their, 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 their temple has been destroyed? What does that say about God? What does that say about this apparent or so-called covenant? And one of the ways that they are dealing. We see this reaction throughout their literature, and I'm, I'm going to say um, there is a dominant reaction in answer to that question, but I think that there are also uh, some mutterings uh, that are different from that, but I'll get to the main answer in a second, but I don't want to give it away, because I, I you guys will be 
you'll be able to pass my quiz before I give it to you, and I just want to hold off. I saw, yeah, a question. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. Great. Great. So, uh, in the in the ancient world, we know of covenants, covenant treaties, uh, whether they were religious or secular, had a list of stipulations. You know, I, we're gonna we're gonna make this agreement, and if we break this agreement, here's here's what's gonna happen. Uh, and uh, one of one of the, the the amazing covenants in the biblical tradition is Genesis 12, when Abraham makes the first covenant with God, right? And they the the ancient Near Eastern covenant treaty was to take an animal and split it in half after you had agreed to the stipulations of a covenant. And the idea is that both parties would walk through this broken, split animal and say. Basically, so be to either of us if we break this covenant, right? And the surprising thing about that first covenant with Abraham is that Abraham doesn't walk through it. Only God walks through it to suggest it's a, a unilateral agreement. It's an unconditional agreement. But as we read in Deuteronomy, as we read in Exodus, there are all sorts of covenant stipulations. I will be your God. I will bless you, I'll give you a future and a hope if you do these certain things. And if you don't do these certain things, then you're going to experience all sorts of things. Not so great. Punishments, right? And so one of the things from a historical critical, a, a perspective of, of reading the Bible from, a, from a, a, a position of trying to say, when were these writings written? And how have they been recycled or edited over the time? One of the things that we, we realize about the book of Deuteronomy is that at least parts of it were written after the exile in recollection. So even Deuteronomy can be understood, or at least parts of Deuteronomy can be understood as a making sense of this very question. How can, how can we be God's covenant people if we experience this reality? And so they look back and they say, we have not kept these laws. We have not, we have not kept covenant. Therefore, God has said, God has, you, you haven't upheld your end of the deal. I'm not going to uphold my end of the deal. And if, 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 there's, if there's one person in here who's like, that makes me a little uncomfortable, that's okay. Because that's, that, we, can, we can talk about that. Um, but that's at least one of the reactions to it. Okay, so let's, let's see if we can move on. The exile, three truths and a lie. I've been waiting for so long to get to this. So I understand, I, because I taught for Ryan a couple of times, that he gave you lots of quizzes. I want you to put in the, the annals of life that this is the first quiz that I've ever given you, okay? And remember that. It took me three weeks. So which statement is not true? A, the experience of exile was traumatic for the people of Israel. B, the experience of exile was understood as divine punishment. C, the experience of exile was not the same for all people living in Judah at the time. And D, the experience of exile ended in the defeat of the Babylonians, or with the defeat of the Babylonians. 
So who thinks the untrue statement is A by way of hands? All right, we're all confident that that's true. B, the experience of exile was understood as divine punishment. Who thinks that is probably? Okay, we got a couple. There's some that are like, maybe that's not true. C, the experience of exile was not the same for all people living in Judah at the time. Not true, okay? Or the experience of exile ended uh, with the defeat of the Babylonians. Who thinks that's not true? Okay, there's some confidence there. That's, so um, all of these are a bit snarky. These aren't great quiz questions. Um, but uh, the lie that we're going to talk about uh, is that the experience of exile ended with the defeat of the Babylonians. We're going to talk about why that was the case. And so just some samplings uh, from the biblical literature uh, about these three truths and a lie. So the first truth is that exile was traumatic. This is Lamentations 1.1. How lonely sits the city that once was full of people, how like a widow she has become, she that was great among the nations, she that was a princess among the provinces, has become a vassal. Loss of independence, loss of statehood, traumatic lamentations begin. This is the very first part of Lamentations. And if you haven't read Lamentations in a little while, go back. You can read it. It's not uplifting. You're gonna, it, it, it is, the title Lamentations comes from the word lament. It consists of a lot of laments. Um, and we're going to see some more from Lamentations in a second. This is how Psalm 30, 137 describes it. By the river, rivers of Babylon. Again, remember, Babylonians. There, was, there we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the, on the willows there we hung up our hearts, for there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? For a people who whose religious identity was rooted in a land, in a space, in a temple. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And in many ways, that is the question of exile. And it becomes the question for the Jewish people in, in, in a lot longer history, longer than the 40 years of exile. How will we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The second truth is that exile was viewed as divine punishment. So this is from Lamentations 4. Actually, Lamentations 4 is one of the most heart-wrenching pieces of scripture that I've read recently. Um, and so I think I've got time to read it all. But I've, I've given you a few verses. But listen for both the trauma and the, the, the theological work that is in Lamentations 4. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The sacred stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious children of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they are reckoned as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even the jackals offer the breast and nurse their young, but my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives them anything. 
Those who feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple cling to ash heaps. For the chastisement of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, though no hand has laid on it. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral, their hair like sapphire. Now their visage is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were those pierced by the sword than those pierced by hunger, whose life drains away deprived of the produce of the field. The hands of the compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food in the destruction of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. It was the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed the blood of the righteous in the midst of her. I'll stop there. 